Listeners, welcome to the 146th episode of The Goods. This is Dan, and I have Brian out there. How you doing today, Brian? Good. Yeah, you know, Halloween has come and gone officially as we sit down here to record, but I'm glad that we get a little bit of that decompression time. You know, I went to Starbucks on November 1st, Dan, and they had already cast aside the pumpkin spice latte it was all red in there all christmas wow but i got the peppermint mocha and you know what that was pretty good too so no hate i I like that also but i was i was surprised with the speed of the transition well that always bugs me about christmas too it's like they build up christmas for like two months and then as soon as we hit the 25th I'm thinking like radio stations playing holiday music and decorations out. Everybody's off for a week for Christmas, but people like all the Christmas stuff goes away. Yeah, it is crazy when they got that like nebulous window of time between Christmas and New Year's where everybody's just hanging out. Why not just keep the music playing? That's what I would think. But anyways, the movie that I ask you to watch is a 2007 film called Trick or Treat. Um, This one had always caught my eye. It seemed a little unusual among horror films from the 2000s. A little more colorful and autumnal looking. A little more orange. And I was just intrigued by it. And uh, I asked you to watch it. And I would say it turned out to be a pretty good end of spooky season pick. It, It is kind of about that transition from Halloween and all the traditions and those kind of ongoing as as people actually live out the day of Halloween. Oh, yeah. It's an extremely Halloween movie. Like, uh, you could go with any horror movie in October, but this is a Halloween movie. Right. Definitely. So did you know anything about this movie, Brian, before I asked you to watch it? So what I knew about it, I hadn't seen it. This was my first watch. Uh, but I've talked about James Rolfe a few times on the podcast and how he was an important part of getting me into film history but i started watching him in depth uh, my freshman year of college which was like 2008 and he had these marathon reviews that he would do every day of october reviewing horror movies and i don't remember if it was the first year or it could have been the third year in like 2009 but like at the he'd go chronologically so he'd start the month talking about some movie from like the early 1900s and then he'd end with like a wrap-up episode that was and what's the most recent stuff going on in horror and one of those he talked about trick-or-treat and how that was like the brand spanking new thing in like 2008 which means now it's 15 years old (laughs) yep yep i had heard mostly good things about it since it first caught my eye it's made by a director named Michael Doherty. And this is one of three movies he's made 
as a director, although he ha- he has a lot of writer credits on various blockbusters. But he made this, and then he made Krampus, which I haven't seen, but I it seems kind of in spirit to this, at least from what I've seen on the outside. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because that is like a horror comedy with really good like physical production design. And yeah, it has an unusual vibe where you're not quite sure how to feel. Kind of like, as we'll see, Trick or Treat to some extent. And then he also did one of the Godzillas in the recent reboot series. But he and he apparently he is planning on making a Trick or Treat 2, or at least someone's going to make a Trick or Treat 2. I saw that it was greenlit. But this movie is an anthology horror movie. So have we talked about any anthologies, Brian? I'm not sure. Not that are coming to mind. You know what it's kind of like is very different genre, but the the teen rom-com Let It Snow, where it had all the different stories that interlocked a little bit. That's a great point, because... You know, at the header of the Wikipedia article, it calls this an anthology film. And yeah, there are different like storylines, but they're not quite as disjointed and separate as some anthology films. Like when I think anthology film, I think like the VHS series where it's literally like they pop in a tape and it's a whole other cast of characters like this is their story. Okay, now pop that tape out, pop the next tape in. Or the the one this really made me think of was Creepshow. Have you ever seen Creepshow? No, what's Creepshow? So that one was a team-up between George Romero and Stephen King. I don't know the exact year. It might have been like 1990 or something. But uh, it's inspired by the EC horror comics, like Tales from the Crypt. And like the different segments are chapters in a comic book. And it keeps cutting back to these like comic style cover pages and illustrations, which happens a few times in Trick or Treat. Right. It had me thinking of a couple different things. I actually want to talk a little bit more about the structure because that really caught my eye and confused me a little bit because I guess maybe what it made me think of a little bit was Pulp Fiction, which is kind of an anthology, but feels not exactly like an anthology, like these different stories that have interlinked elements and characters. But each story is kind of told as a standalone chapter, and you just kind of pick up on the parallels as you go from story to story. But that's not quite true, though, because sometimes this is what confused me and surprised me. It's like it doesn't strictly follow the, all right, we're going to tell all of this story, then we're going to tell all this story. Kind of like you were saying, it's not exactly that, because sometimes it's like intercutting between two stories and sometimes it's doing all of a story and then the next story. So when it's intercutting, it's almost like a Love Actually situation where you have different characters on parallel threads, but their paths cross a lot. But when it's doing the stories more in isolation, it feels more like, uh, again, like Pulp Fiction or something where the stories are kind of more discreet from each other. Right. And something to bear in mind is I'm pretty sure all four stories happen over the same time, which is why you can see bits of others in different threads. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like we keep jumping back. And they all take place on Halloween night. So, yeah, very Halloween-y. And 
the uniting factor between them. Well, I think there's some thematic uniting factors, which we can talk about. But on the surface level, the thing that unites them is they all have an appearance of this little creepy guy named Sam. And you got to have a goblin, Brian. Tell us about Sam. So Sam is an embodiment of the spirit of Halloween. We're, we're trying to make a Santa here. But uh, but for but for Halloween, you you might come up with a mound shroud. You might come up with a Sam. No, nobody's quite got the the brand recognition that Santa's got. But this is a an effort. Uh, Jack Skellington, another one who might fall in that category. What does Sam look like? Well, he's like a baby scarecrow. He's got this big bulbous head covered with a burlap sack, uh, and then the rest of his body is covered with like. An orange onesie, like footy pajamas. Exactly. Like foot, yeah, like the type of thing that my four year old would wear when she goes to bed. Except, yeah, big, weird head. And I think the toddler comparison is not far off because Sam kind of scampers around with like a childlike gait about him. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting about this movie is so we get an intro segment I'm going to talk about here. And then. As part of the intro, I, I think it's right after we see the intro bit, we hear, or maybe it's at the very beginning, I can't remember, but we hear this kind of old-time radio announcement for goblins or, or some monsters out there. So I thought this was going to be like an old-time radio play as like the main kind of inspiration at first, like a like a old, almost a campfire horror story, like a type of thing that you would hear and would creep you out. And I do think Campfire Horror Story is a relevant thing, but then it gets a lot from comics too. It has, it keeps doing that. You kind of mentioned this, like a comic book page look that it throws in there too. So I thought it was also a little bit confused on exactly which like media touch points it was trying to pull in. Yeah, it's a little all over the place at times, but overall, I mean, it's it's neat, and I think they tackled it with a love for the subject matter. So another thing this made me think of actually was um, Over the Garden Wall. Did you get any of that, Brian? A bit, but expand on that. Sure. So first of all, just the way Over the Garden Wall has these different stories that are all related to autumn, but not just your run-of-the-mill spooky stuff. It's kind of more classic look at Americana and the things that kind of underpin the tradition of Halloween like fall festivals and harvests and, you know, things starting to become cold and people having to go inside after spending all, all summer outside. So Over the Garden Wall tackles that kind of from a early century, late 19th century standpoint, very traditional Americana. This is rooted more in that kind of 50s to 80s time period that we've talked a lot about, Brian, the kind of generic mid-late century suburban. Uh, you can't quite tell what decade it is, but it's before cell phones, but after World War II for sure. Right. So I was also thinking about Halloween Tree that we watched recently. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's when we talked about that. And a lot of the things it pulls in are plays on familiar tropes from movies and stories that are associated with fall, but... Not all of them, what I would say, specifically Halloween. So like one of the first stories 
is about a, a beleaguered principal who ends up murdering a kid. And this had me thinking of like sort of a inside out Ferris Bueller, where it's like the, the principal who's always getting punked by the kids, except now he kind of turns it around and actually like murders a kid. It's not a high school principal. It's a elementary school principal, but like some of that sort of 80s kitsch almost to it. Yeah, I didn't figure out that he was a principal is the only thing. Like I read that in the summary after the fact. I don't know. I guess I was just get, trying to get my bearings in this world that's jumping around a lot. Yeah, it, it gets mentioned early on, like only once. And it ends up not being that important to his character otherwise. But I can see why you might have missed that, because I missed a couple of things, too, or at least was confused about them. And I guess we can maybe kind of sprinkle our observations as we kind of talk through what these different story threads are. But I think one thing that kind of ties it together is it's it's simultaneously going for like a slight grindhouse vibe with like some blood and violence in there. But it also just feels a little bit indebted to like the Amblin, not in tone, but like sort of physical prop like there's a little bit of E.T. in Sam, sort of like the the kind of classic pre-digital look of the effects, I would say. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Almost a grittiness to it, but not that's not quite the right word. I, I don't know. Maybe we can we can noodle on it as we go through here. So any other thoughts before we dive in, Brian? How was your Halloween, by the way? Yeah, I was wondering if we talked that now or towards the end, but we had a whole bunch of people come by. I got to drop some pictures in the discord for our podcast. I probably already have, but I go a little bit harder, get a few new large scale decorations each year. And at this point, I think it's become a destination. There were people literally pulling up outside the yard this year saying, you know, it's so great that you do this for the community every year. And so I'm finally, you know, carving out a name for myself nice and and yeah it uh it worked out i was zoltar for halloween the box fortune teller from the tom hanks film big i was pleased with how that came out i am familiar yeah that was i saw a picture of that i thought looked really good did you paint that yourself or did you buy the box somebody made it but that person wasn't me i got it off of facebook marketplace I feel like you could say somebody made it about just about anything. I mean, maybe it's not a somebody. Maybe it's a factory. In some well, cases. yeah, it's not a sweatshop worker. Okay. On a, and they made a thousand. No, this was somebody made one by, by himself. I see. Um, and I actually went and met him, and he was working on a claw machine costume for this year. So maybe next year he'll be selling that. Oh, nice. What about you, Dan? How was Halloween for you and your family? It was pretty good. So uh, I have two kids, as you know, Brian, and what we did, this is our second Halloween since we moved, and we went with the same group we went with last year. So this is my older daughter's school friend who also is our neighbor, but like kind of a back-to-back neighbor, so not in like the exact same street neighborhood to go by streets, you kind of have to go actually far to get to their neighborhood. But just like walking there, it's like backyard to backyard. But anyways, the point is last year there were like four kids and four families. But this year it was like 15 kids and a bunch of different age groups. It wasn't just the the first graders. 
In fact, my four-year-old was the youngest one there and they went as old as like, I don't know, middle school. Um, so it was a huge group and it was a ton of fun. We trick-or-treated for like two hours and we all went out together. So that was pretty cool. I dressed as Steve from Blue's Clues, which is pretty easy. I just had to find the shirt. I found one on Amazon and then khakis and a black belt. So I, uh, I, that's one I've been thinking of doing for a couple of years. So I was glad I did that one. You know that I find Steve to be an inspirational figure. I do know that. Maybe we got to talk Blue's Clues at some point, although I certainly was not as steeped in it as you have been. That's a good point. Blue's Big Musical, the mo- the Blue's Clues movie, would be a great pick for the pod. I-, I need to get that one in your vocabulary, Brian. What were some costume highlights that you spotted on Halloween night? Well, the best one I saw was some middle school girl had a handcrafted Bill Cipher outfit, and... I I wanted to take a picture, but in the moment I felt weird about asking like a twelve year old girl if I could take her picture, so I decided not to do that. I maybe could have snuck one from the side, but that would have been even worse, I think. But anyways, it was very cool. That is really cool, and and you probably made the right choice. Although maybe you could have asked your kid, "Hey, ask her if you can take a picture." Yeah, something like that. You got to use sleeper agents or something. But some highlights for me, I saw one girl who was wearing this black furry material and had like pointy ears and whiskers and she had wings on her back and i said are you a bat and she said i'm a cat wyvern a cat wyvern come on brian how did you not know it's a cat wyvern yeah (laughs) how foolish (laughs) um but then another one was this kid walked up and he was wearing a suit and headphones and the first thing he said when he walked up is do you agree with the virginia law that people over 14 should not be allowed to trick-or-treat and he didn't look 14 he said he was 12 which is about what he looked like but i guess he's planning ahead he wants to keep coming to our house for a while hmm wait what is this law i i don't know i don't maybe it's being debated but I guess it's on this kid's radar. But he was Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. Oh, wait, like, did he have the white sheet thing or whatever he wears? Well, it was he had the suit and headphones. And we were able to find, like, the still from the scene that he would have been from. Okay, nice, nice. Uh, and that's, you know, the kind of thing where it's you wonder, did he watch the movie or is he just knowing it from the memes? Yeah, because that's a famous meme where he where Christian Bale does the ooh, that's nice face. Mm-hmm. So when you said a cat with wings, it occurred to me that this kid could have been. I mean, it sounds like they were a cat wyvern, whatever a cat wyvern is. But my six year old has been reading this book series called Upside Down Magic, which is a magic school series, but it's got like an interesting angle on it. It's it basically has these kids who can't do normal magic as kind of a metaphor for neurodivergency. And the main character of the first book, the way that she's weird is so there's like different types of magic and her type is transforming into animals, but she turns transforms into hybrid animals. And the one she transforms into is a Dritten, D-R-I-T-T-E-N, which is a dragon kitten. It's basically a cat with wings. It's like, okay. what it looks like. So 
That would have been my guess if I had seen someone who was a cat with wings. Is oh, are you doing the upside down magic dritten? And they would have looked at me like I'm a crazy person. Said no, obviously a cat wyvern. Well, that sounds effectively the same thing as a cat wyvern because a wyvern is just a nerdy word for a dragon anyway. So I guess so. But anyways, good good Halloween. We have a new neighbor, and we didn't warn them that basically nobody actually comes to our house. It's like the neighborhood over is the happening neighborhood. Our neighborhood is not the happening neighborhood. And they had like three huge bowls of candy and set a fire pit outside and all these inflatables. And maybe like the reputation of them being a good house to visit will like improve the foot traffic to our house because we get almost no trick-or-treaters to our house. Yeah. Not to belabor it too much, but I think... A key factor in recent years has been the advent of trunk or treat. And so for trunk or treats, you know, the parents take the kids to like a church or a community center. And there are people in the parking lot who pass out candy. And I think there's two things that this accomplishes. One is that they do it the weekend before Halloween. So everybody is available or a lot of people are available. Uh, the other thing is that ostensibly, you know, the people who are handing out the candy. Right. It's just safer. The kids aren't like walking around the neighborhood and could get hit by a car and knocking on strangers doorbells who might be sitting with a pistol on their front step. Or I guess also like, yeah, putting cyanide in candy, as we'll see from this movie. None of that. We went to one trunk or treat this year. Uh, that was at the my daughter's dance studio. And there was a couple of good ones there. I think with the younger teenage audience, the two overriding popular costumes are, well, at least with the the dancer demographic, which is mostly expressive girls, was Barbie and Wednesday Adams. There was like eight each of those. (laughs) Which is not too surprising. I did see some Barbies. I actually saw some Cowboy Kens. With the, like, fringe cowboy shirts. Oh, nice. Actually, I was surprised how many skeletons, like, generic skeletons I saw this year. Uh, that's what my daughter was. Yeah, see, we talked about, like, do the... How how prevalent are the ones that we saw in Halloween Tree? And skeletons had a big showing this year. Big skeleton year. That's good to know. My, my older daughter was a, a skeleton... My younger daughter was a homemade Pinkie Pie from My Little Pony. It was nice. exceptionally adorable, if I am in my unbiased opinion. But good diversion on, on Halloween night. Any other Halloween anecdotes, Brian? I'm sure I'll think of some as we talk. Okay. So let's talk about Trick or Treat 2007, these stories here. So it opens with an intro, which again had me thinking of... Pulp Fiction, where the intro and outro kind of parallel each other. but uh, And I'm sure plenty of other anthologies do similar things. But this is, uh, it follows a boyfriend and girlfriend who are wrapping up a Halloween night, coming back from some party. They seem drunk. They're arguing about the superstition of leaving jack-o'-lanterns lit. So not extinguishing jack-o'-lanterns, leaving them lit. Which, by the way, I, I remembered I watched Halloween Town with my daughters a couple days before Halloween. And that's like the climax of that film. The big twist is like, oh, I have to go light the jack-o'-lantern. 
I never remembered this being that much of a big like thing that people talked about as a superstition, but I guess it's enough of one that it made it in both Halloween Town and Trick or Treat. What's well, in the Gravity Falls Summerween episode too? That they got to do it all before the last Jack O' Lantern is put out. That's right. Yeah. But what I was thinking in this scene, and I guess we get an explanation for it as the movie goes along, but the girlfriend is talking about how she hates Halloween. And yet their yard is full of elaborate decorations. Like these huge scarecrows and each scarecrow is dressed as a ghost and everything's lit up. And this is not the house of someone who hates Halloween. Well, it could be the house of someone who is reluctantly dragged into Halloween activities. Like, I don't know. I feel like, for example, my aunt was not big about decorating Christmas, but my uncle loved decorating for Christmas. So he pulled out all the stops and it's like, I could see that dynamic in a couple, but you're right. It is kind of surprising. It's like, why, why your own yard? I mean, realistically, if you're not into Halloween, you just don't put the porch light on. Exactly. As it turns out, the reason that even those who are not enthusiastic go all out for Halloween in this town is because there is an enforcer at work. <laughs> so the girlfriend kind of flippantly blows out the jack-o'-lantern and the boyfriend goes upstairs i guess they're gonna have some halloween night sex together and for some reason the girlfriend stays outside i don't quite know why and then yeah she gets ambushed by something that we we can't see what it is she just can't stand to have the decorations up another minute she starts ripping everything down i guess so yeah and she gets ambushed by something we don't see. And, and it ends up being Sam, that child goblin creature that we were talking about. Meanwhile, the boyfriend is upstairs like I think he's watching porn or something like that, like waiting for the girlfriend to come upstairs. Right. So her screams like blend with the moans in the video. Yeah. Really setting up like a grindhouse exploitation -y type vibe here that comes and goes throughout the rest of the movie, I would say. But uh, he like dozes off and then he wakes up a couple hours later and goes downstairs and outside and the girlfriend hasn't come inside yet. Why not? Well, outside the girlfriend is there and she's been kind of almost crucified, like hung like a, a scarecrow on on the decorations like she herself becomes the Halloween decoration. And then that kind of kicks off the rest of the movie. That's how the, the intro segment starts. Yeah, and this felt very creep show where it's like you have the big scream moment and then freeze frame on whatever the grotesque tableau is and then it like dissolves into a comic book page. So then we hop into the main batch of four stories, I would say. I'll do it in the order that I think they're introduced in the movie. So the first one is the one about the school principal or he's really just kind of a suburban dad, but it is mentioned that he's a school principal, which again, I like because it plays into like fall is the time of starting school. And there's like a whole storytelling tradition of of school starting is kind of a big part of, of fall. That's actually one thing I really like about Over the Garden Wall is they have a whole chapter dedicated to high school football games and like being a suburban kid in fall, which to me is like a core part of the fall experience that you don't necessarily see when you're just looking at spooky media you know or if you do you see it in kind of toxic ways like you see it in uh 
uh, slashers where there's, I don't know. Anyways, this principal slash dad, suburban dad is, we learn his name is Steven and he gets visited by a annoying fat kid. He made me think of, is it the Goonies that has a fat kid that's not actually that fat, but is like the stereotype of a fat kid? Right. Yeah, Chunk and the Goonies. I could see that too. And he starts feasting on candy on like the front step of the door of the house of where this principal is. Right. So all the transgressors who are going to get punished in this story, they do something to flout the Halloween traditions. So the first girl blew the jack-o'-lantern out and she's ripping down the decorations early i guess and then this kid is taking more than his share so it's like anybody who leaves a bowl out on the stoop he's taken more than one piece and he's just feasting on it going to town and then he starts vomiting a lot gross brown red chocolate blood type stuff because this is not just a frustrated suburban dad slash principal it's a murderer apparently that's he's taking out his his murder some vengeance on this annoying fat kid as we all want to do no i'm just kidding <laughs> it's funny you mentioned patrick bateman because i was getting a little bit of patrick bateman vibes because he's like wearing a, a fancy shirt and a, a button-up shirt and a tie and after the kid starts throwing up the blood and chocolate it gets all over the the dad's shirt and so like when other people see him they're like oh nice costume man but really it's just it's like actual blood from a kid i think they use that joke a few times in, in this movie like prop blood or real blood mistaken as prop blood you know right which is always a great thing you can do with a halloween storyline is play off some something that's going on as a costume like that's the episode of the Ninja Turtles where they can be walking around in public. Or E.T., like you mentioned, can be walking around in public. Had you seen this actor? Well, did you recognize this actor playing the Principal Steven character? So I knew he was familiar, and I did end up reading a bit about him, but I think you did too, Brian. So tell us about this guy. Yeah, so he had a really familiar face to me, and I couldn't place him, and then I looked at his filmography. And who he is, is he has a pretty prominent part in Spider-Man 2 and 3 by Sam Raimi. I think the character's name is Kurt Connors. He's like Spider-Man's teacher, and he eventually in the comics turns into the lizard. But because they stopped at movie three, he never actually became the lizard. And then when they made a movie where they had the lizard, it wasn't him anymore. Yeah, which is makes you wonder what a fourth Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie would look like. I guess we did get the fourth Toby movie when they brought all of them together. But oh, well, this actor's name is Dylan Baker. He's also in Road to Perdition, which I watched about a year ago. And he was in some TV shows I had seen, too. So I knew I had seen him before. He gives a pretty fun kind of campy performance as the frustrated dad <laughs> slash murderer. Yeah. Yeah. He's an odd duck. <laughs> is that a reference to the Norm MacDonald thing on Hitler? <laughs> is, that, is that how you described Hitler? Yeah. Uh, this is one of the funniest comedy routines I've ever seen is Norm MacDonald reading a Wikipedia article on Hitler as if he doesn't know who Hitler is. He's describing the picture of him. He says, real odd looking duck. And then he's reading through it. And then at one point he pauses, he says, hold the fort. 
He hated Jews. And it's very funny. Uh, dark, but funny. Yep. Makes makes me laugh. Anyways, talking about how he was a decorated World War One veteran and stuff. It's, it's... Well, a few episodes back, I talked up on Wikipedia... It, it always sticks out when you see preceded by position established, succeeded by position abolished. And I was thinking of Hitler. Oh, is that one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like Jefferson Davis. Yeah. Anybody who runs a country that only lasts like five to ten years. I've seen uh, an argument that there have in fact been many more presidents than are documented because the Constitution says any time that a president becomes incapacitated that the vice president is the acting president. So like if they go down for surgery or something like that, then the vice president becomes president. And so like our sequencing of president misses out on the three hours that Bob Dole was president or something like that, you know? Interesting. Yeah. There were also some during the articles of confederation, some like Ur presidents. That too. Yeah. Anyways, back to trick or treat with now this this dad Stephen is burying the body. Wikipedia says he's burying two bodies at once. I I didn't see that, but it is like moving around. Well, it's like he takes the tarp off of a hole, and there's already a sack with a body down there. I see. So this is like a pit that he has used before. Okay. And if there's a moving body, we're gonna see that. The fat kid has been beheaded, so it's probably not the fat kid moving around. But he like it's it's almost like a escalating, embarrassing thing because he keeps getting caught just about to bury the body. His his grumpy neighbor yells at him and then his son keeps saying, can we carve the jack-o'-lantern now, daddy? And the meantime, he's trying to get the the meddlesome dead body to stop wriggling in the grave and so that he can bury it fully. This reminded me of the bit in Mulholland Drive where the hitman just has to keep killing people. Oh, that's a good connection. Yeah. Because he's being sloppy. What it really made me think of, and I think this is kind of the energy that it was going for here, is the Joe Dante Tom Hanks movie, The Burbs, which it's not a corpse. Well, it's not exactly a corpse. There does end up being corpses involved, but have you seen The Burbs, Brian? I really love it. Uh, it sounds really good from what you've said. I need to see this one. I don't want to hype it up too much because being surprised by its anarchic energy is part of the fun. But uh, I, I quite enjoy The Burbs as like a, a very dark suburban satire that kind of turns into a horror comedy. But eventually he does bury it, bury the, the body, and he goes back inside to help his son carve the jack-o'-lantern. And he leads his son downstairs with the butcher's knife behind his back. And it seems like he's going to kill his unknowing son. But it turns out the jack-o'-lantern that they're going to carve is the head of the fat guy. So the, the kid hasn't been knowing what's going on this whole time. That's yeah, he's the, in on it. They all have little twists, these segments of the film, these stories within the film. And so the twist here, I mean, beyond just like a, a dad killing trick-or-treaters, is that... The son also is in on it. So that's the first story. Any thoughts on this one before we jump to the next one, Brian, or should we just keep plowing through them? Yeah, we can keep on keeping on. I think it would be hard to carve a human head like a jack-o'-lantern. I mean, it's got bones in there, so 
you're limited in what you can do. Yeah, I wasn't sure what it meant by carve the jack-o'-lantern. I mean, it was obviously just for the punchline of it being a Cuban head and not a pumpkin. But like, what what is the outcome of that act? Well, if you want to see the outcome of that, watch Terrifier with Art the Clown. The first or second one? I haven't seen the second one, and I don't know that I want to. But the first one has probably the best carving a head like a jack-o'-lantern scene. Oh, man. I haven't watched the whole thing. I watched half of it, and then I was like, I think this is enough of this movie for me. That has maybe the most brutal kill I've ever seen in a movie. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I imagine you're talking about the bisection scene. Yeah, this woman hung upside down, and he... he Oh, fully awake and conscious and he just saws right through her from top to bottom and it's pretty gory and bad well from bottom to top because she's upside down i guess yeah that's true anyways the the second story at least in the order that i have it here is uh because this is kind of where they're starting to interlock love actually style but is the one that most felt like a campfire story to me like a uh, kids passing along a story that's also part of it. It's like all of these feel like the type of story that a kid would tell another kid, you know, on Halloween night with like the flashlight underneath your, your head, the spooky lighting on your face, the dramatic flair in your voice as you tell the story, you know. Definitely. So this one follows four, I'd say they're young teens, like 13 or 14 ish. And they're they're led by this one girl named Macy. And we had kind of seen them earlier in the movie going around gathering jack-o'-lanterns. And it's like, why are they gathering jack-o'-lanterns? They say it's like for some charity drive or something like that. But there's clearly more going on. And it turns out what they're trying to do is they're going to get eight jack-o'-lanterns to represent eight souls for the story. But before they do that, they recruit the help of a fifth kid. This is an autistic kid named Rhonda and she is like talking about how Halloween is connected to the ancient pagan rituals, which to me was like also a signifier about what this movie is trying to do. It's like, oh, yeah, OK, it's remembering the roots and traditions of Halloween. You know, that's that's kind of a recurring thing in this this movie. Yeah, like Mount Shroud or Connell Cochran from Halloween three. Con is he the, the Irish guy? Yeah, the Sh Silver Shamrock Company. Eight more days till Halloween, or whatever the jingle is. <laughs> watch, watch. What what I love about Halloween three is that it ends with Stonehenge shooting lasers at people, which is how really all horror movies should end. Stonehenge shooting lasers. It's how Troll two ends. That's a good point. <laughs> Anyways, these five kids with the jack-o'-lanterns, they go to the edge of a rock blasting quarry and this is where we actually get the kid telling the ghost story so uh macy the leader of the group basically tells the story which we we then see in a flashback perhaps real perhaps imagined of this bus driver taking these developmentally disabled kids to the edge of the rock quarry with the intent of killing all the kids at the behest of the parents which is a really dark element to it it's not just a murder he's doing it on behalf of the parents it's kind of a, a cynical thing i would say but one of the kids breaks free and drives the bus off of the cliff 
into the quarry and only the bus driver escapes. And so then we flash back to the kids and they set up the jack-o'-lanterns as tribute and they decide to be brave and go down into this the quarry with this rickety old outdoor elevator. This elevator was a nightmare. I mean, it, it just didn't seem real at all. Like, it wouldn't look like this. It's got, like, the cartoony twisted bars. But also, if this thing really existed, would you climb inside it? <laughs> I would suggest not. Well, 13-year-olds are idiots, so it's possible. <laughs> On Halloween night, you know. That's another spirit captured by the movie is, like, We'll talk about this, I think, in one of the next ones. But the prankster spirit of Halloween. That's another part of Halloween that this movie touches on is like go doing dares, doing naughty things when you're a kid to mess with the, the locals because everyone's out and about. And that's what Halloween's all about is being a prankster. So I like that, too. I'll come back to this point, but I loved the production design in this movie. Just every frame, you could tell this was a Halloween movie. It's just overflowing, super saturated. The colors tell you that. There's always something orange. And in this quarry scene, it's flooded with fog. Just this thick fog that you can't see through. We were talking recently about how some Halloween heads group that you're a part of was going apeshit over some new fog innovation yeah the halloween forums love fog if 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 people post good fog they go nuts you got to have a really nice fog chiller to make it lie low you got to get the like frog juice brand um but then i was telling my brother about this and he said what about the opposite like if somebody posts shitty fog do they like rag on them (laughs) and i haven't seen that yet but that's hilarious it's like, what are you even doing? Look at the look at your shitty fog. <laughs> you fog amateur. Get out of our forum. <laughs> but yeah, these are no fog amateurs here in this project. Yeah. And we we kind of follow the kids separately, and we follow Rhonda, the autistic kid that they brought along. And they've basically set up an elaborate prank for her to make it seem like the other kids have died, but really it's just makeup. Just fake blood. So they're kind of they're messing with her. But then what should happen is the actual spirits of the kids who died from the bus crash rise. And the spirits of the kids from the bus crash start attacking the other teens that Rhonda has left outside of the elevator have now perished. So what this sequence, this bit where, oh, Actually, they're real. Actually, they are killing people. You've tried to fake out once and haha, it's on you. I mean, that is at its crux, the boy who cried wolf story. But it also, the way it's done reminds me of Cabin in the Woods. I mean, these monsters definitely look like something that could have come out of the tunnel network at the climax of cabin in the woods these like zombie children and they're all wearing these like muddy halloween masks what it had me thinking of was halloween resurrection which often gets ranked as the worst halloween and my hot take is i think it's like median 
maybe even upper half. I don't know, like right around the middle. And most people absolutely hate it, but I think it's a really clever premise. So basically in the post, uh, I think it's called Haddonfield. Is that the name of the town? In the post Mike Myers Haddonfield, the Myers house has become like a garish spectacle that like horror heads love to go visit and like freak out about. And somebody sets up a reality show to basically pay people to spend a night in the Haddonfield house. But what the people who go into the reality show don't know is they're going to get pranked by the makers of the reality show with fake Mike Myers pop out scares. But then wouldn't you know it? Real Mike Myers shows up and starts actually killing people and people are watching the show, the reality show, knowing that it's all pretend and scaring people. And so they're like laughing and cheering when Mike, Michael Myers appears thinking that it's a fake thing, but then he ends up actually killing them and the kind of play of, Oh wait, you think it's fake, but it's actually real. So it was a, a fake thing that turns real. And in fact, in that one, the viewer doesn't even know like the viewer being the audience watching Halloween resurrection doesn't always know whether it's a real Michael Myers or a fake Michael Myers before the stabbing actually occurs. Yeah, it could be uh, Buster Rhymes, right? Exactly. And the punchline of that one, and this is the kind of cheesiness that make people hate it, but Buster Rhymes says, trick or treat, motherfucker, and then does a karate kick and kicks Michael Myers out the window. And that's how that one ends. But anyways, uh, the the place that we, we see Sam in this one is as she's walking away, Rhonda from the quarry, she kind of passes Sam and gives him like a hat tip as if they're old buddies. That made me laugh a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because as we'll see, if we haven't figured it out already, Sam treats you nice if you follow all the rules. Right. If you respect the traditions and aren't an asshole about like the rules that should be followed. So like if you're the kid who steals the candy, you're going to die. If you're the kid who's mean to the local autistic kid, you're going to die. But he kind of goes the other direction with it. He's like, okay, now I'm going to be the asshole because you were the asshole. It's like, that seems kind of hypocritical of you, Sam. <laughs> I, I guess if you're a Halloween goblin, it's allowed, though. I don't know. He's he's all about compliance. He's like Halloween OSHA. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Like, if you get one step too high on the ladder, they're going to hit you with a citation. Right. Except the citation is going to be, like, knock you off the ladder and decapitate you or something. <laughs> so at that point, it's like, well, why are you even enforcing the safety if you're just going to go and, and do the violence yourself? That's the way it is on Halloween in Trick or Treat. Third story here after the intro, I guess, the maybe fourth if you count the intro. This... Halloween party. So this follows another kind of 80s movie trope, which is the dorky virgin girl. And she gets invited to go to this party and they talk about it being her first time, which, of course, is making you think she's a virgin, although we'll end up seeing it's a different kind of first time to this wild party that her sister and their friends are hosting, where they all dress up as slutty versions of fairy tale characters. And I'm glad that the movie honored another great Halloween tradition, which is women in their young 20s dressing as slutty versions of other things for Halloween. That's another very important part of the American Halloween experience. And Laurie ends up dressing as Little Red Riding Hood. And so as they head to this big party, they're like, 
hitting on young men as they go and inviting them to the party. I thought they were being pretty indiscriminate with who they were inviting. Like, I mean, where did they get the first guy? He's just like there. Yeah, it's like a handsome construction worker type guy or so, driving a truck or something like that. I forget. Yeah, it was like a UPS guy or something. They just they're randomly grabbing these guys that they come across. Oh, and like a store clerk or something, a checkout clerk. Yeah. And so this is one of the ones that's kind of in the intercut section. So then we got away from them a while and then we cut, cut back to them. And they're now heading to the party with all of the men they've picked up. But Lori decides, no, I don't want to go to the party just yet. I'm going to enjoy uh, this fall festival. Another piece of fall culture that I feel gets underrepresented is the community fall festival. I love a good fall festival, Brian. Which ones have you been to in our, our area? Oh, well, Burke does one in like the first weekend after a full week of school. So usually like September 10th or 11th. Okay, so that's a little earlier. Yeah. They have the Burke Fall Festival, which is a little early. And then, I mean, I, I love like Cox Farms, which is like during the day they have a all ages festival and then they got the haunted walkthroughs at night. What about you? What are some recommendations? Viva Vienna is a great one. You should go to Viva Vienna some year. That's the, the town of Vienna. I've worked Viva Vienna before. I had a booth. Oh, nice. I worked for the same company that had that booth and I had, I think I've done Viva Vienna. I've done plenty of those festivals. There's also a Vienna Halloween parade that goes down the Vienna main street that I've been a part of. Nice. So anyways, she's, she's kind of walking through this fall festival which I guess is on Halloween night. Normally this wouldn't be on Halloween night, a festival like this, but that's all right. And because everybody's kind of dressed up, there's this one guy who is very vampire-esque. He's wearing kind of like a Phantom of the Opera type cloak and mask. And he basically attacks a woman as if a vampire would, like biting her neck and blood comes out. So he's bad news. And then he ends up stalking down Lori. This is another scenario like attacks that woman and he can just like kind of place her body on the side of the road because, oh, she just looks like a person sitting on the ground whose makeup is blood on her neck and her shirt and stuff. But Little Red Riding Hood to get to the party, that's Lori. She needs to go through the woods, of course. And he kind of plays the big bad wolf type character approaching her and talking to her. And then we kind of cut away just as it seems like he's about to attack her. And then we see the party itself and someone comes out of the woods. Well, of course, what we would expect is that it's the the man having attacked the woman with the woman. But in fact, it's Lori with the man and she's attacked him. And then we realize, uh oh, this group of women is not what they appear to be on the surface. So they unmask the man. And I'm pretty sure is that like the character from the first story, Stephen? Yeah, it's Steven. So he's going around biting people. I guess that's his other thing that he does. This seemed kind of out of the blue. It's like this dude already had his own thing. He doesn't need another thing to be doing in the story. I guess th this movie's having some fun at like the cuteness of the way the stories interact. Right. They wanted to have some interweaving. But then all of the women turn out to be werewolves. That's the twist of this one. They're not just partiers. They're actually werewolves about to have like a bloodlust fest 
that vaguely also resembles an orgy because they all like have to rip off their clothes before they transform into werewolves and start devouring the men around them. And hence why it didn't matter too much who you took to this party. I mean, they were acting like the cash cab. It's just whoever you roll past. Yeah, come on. You could be the one. I think I would probably still get in the car, though. <laughs> Even if you knew they were werewolves, would you get in the car? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I probably still would. That's the way to go out. <laughs> I never thought I would die this way, but I always really hoped. <laughs> but the effects here are awesome. When they take off their skin, mm -hmm. like, it's, the, yeah, it's like thick rubber gloves or something. It's actual, all physical stuff that they're taking off. It's kind of skin crawling. It's It's creepy. Yeah, it looked good. Um, and this, to me, was also playing on the tradition of horror movies where all of the murder stuff is thinly veiled metaphor for the scariness of sex and the violence of sex inherent in that, you know, slasher movie 101 stuff, which I thought was a pretty good job of it. That's the Halloween party. So the last one of these follows Krieg, who is the grumpy neighbor from the very first movie, remember, or sorry, the very first, not the very first story, but the one where there's the dad and the principal, the Steven guy, the curmudgeonly neighbor is this guy named Krieg. And we had kind of seen like out of the corner of our eyes, him getting attacked or something through his window. And so we we're going to see what's going on there. So it turns out that Krieg, the neighbor is like a anti trick or treating curmudgeon. He just loves to mess with the kids because of how much he hates Cal Halloween. He, he like scares them really bad and stuff when they come to his door. But then he starts getting kind of pranked and the pranks escalate and escalate. And then it turns out it's actually Sam doing all this, the little, little goblin guy. And he just kind of appears in his house. So now we're actually getting a Sam focused story. I thought it was good that we ended up seeing learn, learn a little bit more about what Sam's deal is. Yeah, he gets to star in an act. And it's kind of the climactic act. He kind of torments Krieg. He like does Home Alone type pranks almost. He like throws out candy and Krieg falls on it. But it turns out there's broken glass mixed in with the candy. So it like makes his hand all bloody as he falls on the candy and stuff. And Krieg eventually gets his shotgun and shoots Sam and pulls off his mask. And then we see what's underneath the burlap sack. I wasn't sure if we were going to, Brian, but we do. And it's a really cool design, really cool creature design, I thought. He's like a, a pumpkin jack-o'-lantern skull hybrid type thing. Yeah, he's like a pumpkin fetus. Yeah, yeah, it's got some of that too. But uh, just kind of a, a pretty nifty piece of production. This sequence was a lot like an episode of the anthology show Tales from the Dark Side, which was a project that George Romero had in like, the 80s and that episode i think it's called something like trick-or-treat it might just be called trick-or-treat but it's this old man who is crotchety and like mistreating trick-or-treaters and then the supernatural forces come after him and are like besieging his house it was like to the point that i wondered if it was intentionally an homage what it had me thinking of was evil dead I think it's specifically Evil Dead 2. It's I watched all of them in like a marathon, and so they kind of blur together for me. Um, and, th and at this point, that was several years ago. But the one with the hand chasing around uh, Ash in that movie, because 
when he gets shot by a shotgun, when Sam gets shot by a shotgun, he gets like he falls apart and then he reassembles Iron Giant style. But for a while, his hand is kind of crawling around like like an evil dead or like what's the name of the thing in Adam's family? Is it just thing? Yeah, the thing or thing. You're right. Yeah. And this sequence ends with I wasn't it wasn't 100 percent clear to me. It's like uh, Sam essentially forces Krieg to hand out candy to him. So he's like, you will obey the trick or treat laws. Here's the candy. You are trick or treating. And then as soon as he does that, Sam kind of goes away. Right. So Sam, I mean, he's got a few different weapons, but like the iconic one is he has a sucker, a lollipop that's been sharpened to a point. And so he can slash you and stab you with that. And then he also had like a chocolate bar that had a razor blade in it. And that feels repetitive to me. It's like it's essentially the same thing. You're, you know, hyping this up as, oh, he's pulled out something else. But it's it's just a, a candy that can stab you. So but yeah, the the like the sharp lollipop is very uh, iconic. And he goes to stab the old man with this thing like he's finally got him all messed up and crumpled on the floor and he stabs him. But the lollipop jabs into his pocket and pulls out a piece of candy. So it's it's almost like, you know, it's stopped a bullet and saved his life that way. Like, I don't think this was intentional. I see. So it wasn't what he, Sam was trying to do. It just incidentally happened. Yeah, but it satisfies the contract. Right. He's fulfilled the terms of Halloween night. And and then we get to the conclusion, which kind of shows the aftermath of all of these. So one thing that I think we were supposed to take away from that story, but I didn't quite pick up on until the conclusion is that Krieg, the neighbor, is actually the bus driver from the story where there is the bus drive massacre, uh, the the school bus massacre and the bus driver escaped. So that that's kind of like another little twist here is that uh, he's the bus driver from the previous story, which the conclusion has kind of little tags, little punchlines on all the stories we've already seen. So we see... Rhonda pulling around a wagon of the jack-o'-lanterns and we see Lori and her friends with the post-murder orgy party going around in a car and then the very last one we see is the undead victims ringing Krieg's doorbell and he opens it and oh wait it's the not just kids dressed up it's actually the victims of the the bus drive massacre. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because he had, like, mended his ways. He's handed out candy as he's learned to do. He's had his Scrooge moment. But then here come the the spirits of the people that he killed a while ago, or not intentionally, but was going to, presumably out to come and get him because he was the only one who survived. And then there's another kind of, like, mini little twist where we see that the conclusion leads right into the intro, basically. So, like... We see Sam seeing the the original drunken couple from across the street. And so the movie's like a Mobius strip or something like that. That's also what uh, Pulp Fiction does, sort of, where the the first story ends up connecting back with the last story. With the, the wallet that says bad motherfucker on it. The diner heist, diner robbery. But that's how Trick or Treat ends. So I thought this was a really fun specifically Halloween movie, like you said, Brian, like it, it transitions you from Halloween season as like a capstone 
to fall after Halloween. Very orange, as you said. Extremely orange. Every frame in this movie felt artfully constructed. And it's like being in a Hallmark candle shop or something. Just this overwhelming essence of fall. And I kind of like this tone for horror movies where it's not quite so grim and dour. It's kind of playful to it, but it still has some nastiness to it. Maybe a hair too much nastiness for me. It could have been a, a little more playful, I think, but it because it, it does have kind of some of that grindhouse DNA in it with all the blood and stuff that it has and violence in it. But I, I dig this tone for, for a movie. It really felt like a unique tone for a horror movie because it felt tied in with like the festive autumn spirit in a way that horror movies typically aren't. And the production, like you said, just just a lot of fun. Any other thoughts on Trick or Treat, Brian? I think I'm ready to get into our Is It Good? Sure. So Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Toward a Good, an eight out of eight. So Brian, is Trick or Treat good? So I was waffling a little bit, and our discussion has kind of reinvigorated me because this movie is kind of like all over the place at times the tone sometimes has a bit of whiplash but what is consistent is just how good everything looks i loved the devotion to halloween and just making it instantly apparent that that's the night that it is and it how just about everything we see is like a practical effect or a costume or makeup and it does work overall it's a lot of mishmashed parts by design as any anthology movie is going to be uh, but i think it works out i'm gonna land at six out of eight dan a very good what are you thinking I was also a little up and down on this one. The parts that were good are are really charming and, and even funny, I thought. The structure really threw me off. Like, oh, wait, it's bouncing between them. Oh, wait, now we're spending 15 minutes of the same story. Uh, that kind of threw me off. And again, something about the the edge of it was maybe just a little too gritty for what it what wanted to be. I don't know, uh, more upbeat almost. But that said, really just a, a minorly bitter aftertaste on that. It It's it's just so much fun and unique, and it really feels like it's kind of capturing in a, a innovative spirit for horror movies that I was really vibing with and just found lots of fun. And the production's really great. And I could see this being like a one that you always rewatch on Halloween or like the day before Halloween or even November 1st. This could be a good November 1st movie, I think. I'm going to land on a six as well, Brian. I think this is a very good Halloween movie, a very good horror movie. It makes right by the anthology structure overall. It's a good time to watch. I'm glad we watched it. I'm glad we watched it when we did on the pod. So I'm going to say Trick or Treat, six out of eight, very good movie. Yes, good pick. And I see we're pretty aligned on that. So that brings us to... Our, our next pick, which is going to be by you, Brian, we're going to let you pick. And then I think we're going to have a guest after you, but you're going to have one intermediate episode here. So what movie should we watch next week, Brian? All right. So 
in Trick or Treat, we had Sam as a mascot for Halloween, an embodiment of the holiday. And we also talked this episode a bit about, well, what do you, what do, you do when suddenly the pressure's off? It's not peak spooky season anymore, and now you're into something new. And, and how do you deal with that? And in that same headspace, Dan, I want to talk about a movie that has its 30th anniversary this year. And this is The Nightmare Before Christmas from Tim Burton. And is it Harry Selleck? Henry Selleck. I think Henry Selleck. Okay. Maybe maybe his friends call him Harry. <laughs> but a stop motion classic, modern classic. And obviously a lot of people know it, but I think we can do some digging in. I think it'll be fun to talk about and keep the Halloween going a little bit longer with the excuse that it's also a Christmas movie. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about what season this movie best belongs in. And I think that's one of the reasons you're bringing it up now for that, that transition period. So for sure, this will be fun. I'm looking forward to it. I've watched it, I think, two of the last three, even maybe all three of the last years but I definitely am happy to watch it again. So we'll talk Nightmare Before Christmas, Brian. Cool. Yeah, I, I need to revisit it. I'm sure it hasn't been that long since I watched it, but I tend to watch like the first 15 minutes and then do something else because the opening's so good. The opening is incredible. We'll, we'll talk about it. All right. Have a good one, Brian, and happy November. Happy November, Dan. Bye. Bye.